0: Matthew 25, if you would join me there, the last time, I think, Lord willing, uh, that uh, we should be here in Matthew 25 for a while at least. Matthew 25, if you're new here, I haven't had a good chance to look around to see if anyone uh, is a first time or second time. If you're second time, you know that we've been going through the book of Matthew, uh, and we are steadily moving forward. The section we're in now is chapter 24 and 25, called the Olivet Discourse, And we complete that today. I think this is the seventh message in these two chapters. And we want to cover the last, what is it, 16, 17 verses of chapter 25. Quick review before we read the text. It is a longer text um, with a lot of parts in it. And I'll go ahead and kind of throw this out to you. When we read the text, I hope you will read it thoughtfully. So much so that like on Wednesday nights, one of the things we learned about Bible study is as we're reading the text do any questions come up within it? And that's a sign that you're really engaging, really thinking if you start like, wait, what in the world is that? And what what does that mean? And and what's going on? Who are they? And the timing and all of those things. So I want to encourage you in a moment as we read this to be reading it in a way that like you're engaged and like, wow, that that makes me wonder. But keep moving through and hopefully by the end we'll be able to answer, Lord willing, most of those from the text and at least biblically in the whole counsel of, of the word of God. So here's the scene. It is the Passover week. Jesus will be put on trial. I know I say these same same things each week. Jesus will be put on trial in just a couple of days from this time. Uh, It's been an extremely long day of teaching and confrontation in the temple. He has now exited the temple. Back in chapter 24, which these two chapters go together, his disciples, four of them, asked, When? What, when will, what's going to happen to the temple? When will that take place, the destruction of the temple? And then, particularly what we're studying now, they ask another two-part question. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What, be, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus has been answering that. He's given some very general things to look for that's going to happen, that have been happening from the time he said it, around A.D. 30, up till now. And they will keep happening Until he comes back, so he's giving some general things. But then in chapter 24, verse 15, he started giving specific things. And we'll mention those again in a minute. Very specific things. When you see this, then you'll know that his coming is really, really near. In fact, we know, without rehashing the whole study, once verse 15 of chapter 24 happens, there's only three and a half years left. Taking that, going back and tracking it down in the book of Daniel. And so he gives those things to watch. But then as we spill over at the end of 24, here's what, here's what he says. But of that day and hour, the timing, no one knows. So he's saying he's going to come. Here's some general things to look for. Here's the specific things to look for. I'm coming just as sure. He says the heavens and the earth will pass away, but his word will, will be accomplished. So he is going to come. But he says no one knows the exact timing. Because no one know, no one knows except God. People on earth, the vast, vast majority will be living then at the time of his coming like they lived right before the flood in Noah's day. And then he heads into this section again at the end of 24 through chapter 25, verse 30, where we finished last week. He had this whole section where he was challenging his hearers, be ready. So don't let the fact that you don't know when it's going to happen cause you to like, hey, don't know when it's going to happen. Let's just live life like normal. No, live life abnormally, unusually, always being ready. And then he gave three parables, right? So there was this good, faithful servant who did what his master said. And there there was a comparison between a wicked servant who didn't do what his master said while he was away. And then the master came back and found the one doing the right thing, found the other one not doing the right thing. And there was commendation for one and judgment for another. Then he had a parable about 10 virgins going out to intercept a wedding procession. Five of them were wise and took oil for their their torches. Five of them were foolish. They did not. They had the torch but had no oil for the torch and then tried to borrow the others. Could could we borrow your oil? And the lesson there was, no, you have to have your own relationship with the Lord. And then last week, what we saw is the parable of the talents. We use kind of equivalent of our day. This master is going away, and he has three servants, and he gives one servant the equivalent of three million dollars. he gives another one the equivalent of 1.2 million dollars, and another one the equivalent of 600,000 dollars. The one the two here, they go work immediately, continuously, until the master comes back. They double what was given to them. Three million becomes six, 1.2 becomes 2.4. Million. But unfortunately, the other one took what had been given to him and the opportunities that lie before him and just buried it. He buried his one talent that was the equivalent of $600,000. And the Lord put all those parables together, and here's what we concluded. We need to be ready for the second coming of Christ, and you'll only know that you're ready when you are saved and serving. Saved and serving. If you're not saved and not serving, you're not ready. If you are serving but not saved, you're not ready. If you are saved, you say, I know I'm saved, but you're not serving the Lord. You're not ready. The only way to be ready is to be saved and serving. And so now the Lord is going to say what happens when he comes back. So he's going to actually beyond the answer to their question. What will be the signs of your coming? And so he's given the signs of his coming. Now he's actually going to tell us what happens when he comes. Let's read these verses. Look at verse 31. Jesus speaking says, when the son of man, that's his title for himself. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. He will sit on His glorious throne. What kind of person has a throne? Okay, we're already thinking now. Verse 32. Before Him, once He's seated on on the throne, before Him will be gathered, it's going to happen, all the nations. And he will separate. So all the nations gathered, and he will separate people, one from another. How? As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So he'll be seated on his throne. He's going to gather all the nations. He starts separating the people, one from another, like a shepherd does sheep from the goats. Verse 33. And he will place the sheep on his right. So the sheep represent a kind of people. The sheep will be on his right, but the goats on the left. Verse 34 is a key verse. Then the king will say to those on his right, the place of honor, place of power. There's a reason they've been put there. He will tell them, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry... And I was hungry. Did you catch it? I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty. Jesus is talking. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison. And you came to me. Then the righteous, those who are on the left, they're called sheep earlier. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, their question is when, so verse 40, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, those that were labeled as goats earlier, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed Into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. One group come into the kingdom that was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. This group depart. You come. You depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Why is this happening? For I was hungry, and you gave me... I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? When, when did that happen? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these, you talk about the, the, the greatest contrast in Scripture. This has to be right there with, with any of them. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Did that raise any questions in your mind? As we read that, if this was a Wednesday night, I'd give you 10 minutes or 15. We'd have a handout, write down some questions that come up out of this text. Uh, I know you didn't have time to do that. You've only read it once, and you had to read it at the pace, and you had to listen to me read it. You didn't get to hear your own voice in your own So let me share some questions that came up in my mind as I read this this week a few times, the early times. Number one, here's one question. When is this judgment? When is this judgment going to take place? Which judgment is it? A second question that came up, who are these people that Jesus calls his brothers? Brothers and sisters is the idea. Who are these brothers and sisters of Jesus? What's their identification? Who are they? What's their description? Third question that I wonder, but it's not a major one, and I'm not going to be able to answer it, though I'll throw it out again later. Watch. Did the sheep and the goats know who the brothers and sisters were when they gave to them or neglected them? Did they know who they were? Did they know they were these going to be called brothers by Christ? And then I guess the million dollar question, as you read that, if you were really paying attention, has to be, so wait a minute, Jeff, does this text insinuate that there's a group of people, a special group of people who are going to get into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, solely based on their good works? Is that not what verse 35 and 36? Come, you are blessed by my Father and the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me. I was this and this and this and you did this and this and this. When did we do that? We don't remember that happening. When you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. So come. Are they getting in because of good works? Is that what the text is saying? You already know where we're going to go on that, right? All right. Why would you say that it's, anyway, we're going to get there. We're going to get there a little bit later, a few minutes. Um, Can I throw this out? Anytime you have a difficult passage and an obscure passage, I forget who taught me this. I don't know when I learned it, but when you encounter a difficult, obscure passage, you want to always be sure that you interpret that in light of very clear, multiple passages. Right? Always interpret, man, that's difficult. You don't want to find like one hard to understand text and build your whole theology on that if it just blows away many, many other texts that are crystal clear. So you can kind of already tell what we need to be cautious about as we approach this text. Number one, out of three things we want to notice this morning number one, Jesus is the judge and the king. Jesus is the judge and the king. So let's quickly go back to the first question that I proposed to you. When does this judgment take place? This is a real event. When is it going to happen? All right, I'm going to give you probably, I'm assuming, the two main views. And guys, listen, you remember when we were back in chapter 24, and I said, we need to be very gracious about those who have a different view than we do, because good, godly people differ on some of the things in here, good, godly people There are good, godly people who love the Lord that, again, know way more about the Word of God than I do or any of us in this room. And many of them believe that this judgment happens at the very last thing. What this is talking about to them is the last judgment of all. In other words, Jesus has given all these signs of the end times. He skips a lot. Either of you, I'm going to offer you, Jesus skips a lot. He doesn't just like stop and expound the book of Revelation. There's Revelation comes later. He'll give those details later. So either way, he's skipping a lot of details. But some say that he is now projecting to the last, like what we would call the great white throne judgment, the last judgment of all, that's what's being described here. That's not the view I'm going to propose. That's not the angle that I'm going to kind of go from today. But it is a legitimate one. That is perhaps what's being put forward here. Some of those, many of those that believe that, what they do is they they view... References in Scripture to the thousand-year millennial kingdom as just symbolic. Not all the ones who hold that view that I just said see that. But many think that language about the thousand-year millennium, that's symbolic. And really, we go from here, Christ come back, this judgment, we jump right on into eternity. That's one view that a lot of people hold. But here's another view that I'm going to propose to you. And to me, it really makes sense, and it flows well. You're not going to see it on the screen, so I hope you got your Bible open. Flip back to chapter 24. Flip back to chapter 24. Let's go back to those specific things because I'm going to propose that all those parables and the be ready part was kind of like this, this uh, oh, parenthetical section. So I'm going to propose that what we're looking at in verse 31 of chapter 25 is actually kicking us back to verse 31 of chapter 24. So let's flip back to that area. You want to, see, you want to be able to see chapter 24, Verse 29. We're going to hit it because there's words there. So here was the question. What will be the sign of your coming? Jesus says in verse 15 of 24, when you see the abomination of desolation, we know from Daniel, again, not re-preaching that, there's going to be a final seven-year section of time where the Lord is going to especially deal with the nation of Israel. But then this abomination of desolation, once it hits, we know there's three and a half years that are left. So that's a specific thing to look for. And then, he says, after that, verse 21 of of chapter 24, he says, after that, there's going to be great tribulation after the abomination of desolation. And now look at verse 29. You see verse 29? Not on the screen. Immediately... After the tribulation of those days. So abomination of desolation, great tribulation. So now he's saying immediately after. So now we're jumping ahead toward the end. Apparently the last few months of the great tribulation, verse 29 starts happening, and there's going to be a whole series of things that are going to happen at the end of the tribulation. Let me read verse 29 quickly in 30, 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Be looking for that. He's telling them. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. Things are literally falling from the atmosphere. Why? Because of the next phrase. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. So the powers of the heavens that holds everything in place, that's shaken. Christ is relaxing. Things are being allowed to come into the atmosphere and fall to the earth, and devastation is happening. Verse 30, here's another thing to look for. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. These are real things. You catch these words immediately after. And then the word then. And then the word then keeps coming up. Verse 30, uh, verse 30 in the middle. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This answers the question, what's the sign Of your coming, this is what to expect. Verse 31 even. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And then Jesus pauses and says, nobody knows the time. You need to be ready at all times. Here's what readiness looks like. Now with that in mind, skip over back to chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And then this judgment occurs. If you're taking notes, write this thought. This judgment takes place at the end of the tribulation and immediately just before the millennial kingdom. That's why some of your Bible, mine right here in front of me, it says, the little label here, not inspired, says the final judgment. I don't believe this is the final judgment. We've titled today's message as the judgment of the nations. There's a big difference between those two. There's a thousand year difference between those two. This one is the judgment of the nations at the end of the tribulation period just before the millennial kingdom. So that's kind of the when. When is this judgment taking place? Now with that in mind, would you look at verse 34 because Jesus does something he's not done the entire time in in all of the book of Matthew. You see verse 34. Talking about himself, he's seated on the throne, the nations are gathered, he's separating. Then the king will say to those on his right, catch it, then the king. Hey guys, this is the first time Jesus has referred to himself as the king. He's used parables that have his father as the king. Pretty soon Pilate is going to ask him because the nation of Israel is accusing Jesus of calling himself the king. Obviously, anyone who's the Messiah will be the king. But Christ, for the first time, by the way, he'll tell Pilate, "It is as you have said." But here, privately, his disciples, Jesus, now very clear, crystal clear, refers to himself as the King, and we know he's the Judge. The fact that he's the judge, guys, matches perfectly with John chapter 5, verse 22, where Jesus had earlier said, the Father, God the Father judges no one. So if you're thinking, uh-oh, one day I'm going to stand before God the Father and he's going to judge me. No, God the Father does not judge anyone because the Father has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son as they honor the Father. So this is perfectly in line with that. Jesus is saying, I'm going to come back. I'll set up my throne. Literally on this earth, literally, this is really ha- happening This will happen in Jerusalem on this earth at the end of the tribulation before the millennial kingdom. Christ will set up and and two kind of main things are happening. He's going to collect all the nations and then he's going to separate people. But he's not going to separate people by nations. All the nations will be gathered, but then he will separate individually. Separately. The judgment there will be on an individual basis. Just as a quick aside, I want to offer, did we get that last note? Yes. Oh, just, okay, great. I, this isn't a, a, a real insight. This is obvious. I don't know how many people will be on earth when the tribulation starts, but there's not going to be a lot of people at the end. You say, why? Because by, during those seven years of tribulation, there's going to be seven seals of judgment. Remember the seven-sealed scroll? Each seal that is broken by Christ unleashes a judgment on the earth. I didn't have time to go through them all. Just a while ago, I thought, you know what? And I saw the fourth judgment, the fourth seal judgment. That judgment alone wipes out 25% of the earth's population. There are seven seal judgments that are followed by seven trumpet judgments, which are followed by seven bowl judgments, which are followed by three woe judgments. So the population is just dropping, dropping, dropping. On top of that, Christians are being martyred for their faith, persecuted by the Antichrist, so they're dying. And then you have this thing called the Battle of Armageddon, where the armies of the world are going to come together, and they're going to try to bottle up and, and, and really take, wipe the Jews out once and for all. And no doubt, other nations are coming to fight the Antichrist army, and then they're going to see Christ, and they're going to try to just turn probably their joint efforts on Christ, and they're all going to get wiped out. And then the Lord gathers what's left, and he gathers. so that he can separate them. Again, not, not separating by name. It's not like Americans are over here. No, all in America, every island will be void of people. Every continent, every island, all people who are left will be there around Christ, and a certain group will be put on the right, and a certain group will be put on the left, and I dare say you can expect the one on the right will be much smaller. This will be predominantly children, no doubt women, and older folk, maybe a few middle-aged men that somehow didn't get involved in the war, maybe a few, and they're separated. Last thought before we go to the second point. This judgment is individual, but what Christ keeps hammering away, guys, there's only two groups. Ultimately, there's only two people, two types of people. He's talked to us through this book. There's the wheat and there's the tares. This phase of the kingdom is like A boat over there and a boat over here, and they have a dragnet between them, and they're working through the Sea of Galilee, and they, they wrap around, and they bring all these fish up to the shore and in the nets, all kind of fish. But eventually at the end, the Lord says, the good fish will be separated from the bad. So there's only good and bad fish. There's the sower who sows seed, and the seed falls on good ground and three types of bad ground. So ultimately, there's three types of bad ground. There's bad ground and there's good ground. There were these ten virgins. Five are wise and five are foolish. He's over and over driving home, guys. There's ultimately only two kinds of people. He's the judge and the king, number two. Notice with me in verses 34 to 40, the inheritance of the blessed. And this is where we're going to encounter a couple of other of our questions that we noted at the beginning. The inheritance of the blessed. Look at verse 34. Then... So after the nations are gathered and people are separated individually, not as nations, but into right and left, sheep and goats. Then, verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was, and he goes on to this list of things. This happened and that happened. So who are these on the right? If you're taking notes, write the following. It appears, and I feel pretty confident in this. This is, honestly, I believe in my heart of hearts. This is the right interpretation here. These people appear to be a very unique, special group of people who at the end of time, as we know it here before the millennial kingdom, they are so special that they will go directly into the millennial kingdom in natural bodies. In other words, they're living just the same body that you have. They, that's the body they will have. The tribulation will occur. They survive the tribulation. The angels gather them around Jerusalem, Jesus is on his throne. He separates the people. He tells this group on the right that they are going to enter the kingdom, and he is going to go into the reasons why they're going into the kingdom. So, this is a special group of people who go into the millennium in natural bodies, and they're going to repopulate the earth. In the millennial kingdom. And I think that's important because the population of the earth is probably very small to begin with. But it is really going to take off and grow like it never has before. Now remember the the conditions. Going into the millennial kingdom. The curse will be lifted. What does that mean? That means these people. Let me give you a few descriptions. I'm not going to preach on the millennial kingdom. Don't have time. But a few descriptions just so we can appreciate what's going on. These people will go into the millennium in natural bodies. The curse that causes people to die physically, that's going to be lifted. They're not going to die. These people will live to be over a thousand years old. They will live to be over a thousand years old. Their offspring... Now, these people, I'm going to propose to you in a moment, are, are saved. Obviously, we know from verse 46, they end up with eternal life. All that start the millennial kingdom, they end up with eternal life. But they're going to have offspring. Their offspring are still going to have a sin nature. And because of that, they're going to need to put their faith and trust in Christ. But Jesus is ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. And so, the vast majority of people will. He will be ruling and reigning. And those of us in the the church, and if we die in Christ, we're going to be ruling and reigning with him over them. We'll have glorified bodies. They'll have natural bodies. Remember this. Satan has been bound for the thousand years. He's bound up, so that whole source of temptation is gone. Jesus is ruling and reigning. His people are scattered all around the world, perfectly holy and godly in glorified bodies. And so, sin should not be a major problem. The earth's curse is going to be lifted. In other words, the ground is going to start producing like it was meant to in the Garden of Eden. The Bible says that children, little children, are going to to be playing over the snakes, the poisonous snakes' den. The lamb and the lion are going to lie down and take a nap right beside each other. Apparently, the lions are going to have their whole teeth changed, and they're going to be able to eat grass. It will require a whole reconstruction of their jaw. The topography around Jerusalem, I said I wasn't going to preach a millennial kingdom, and there I'm doing I've got to move on. It's it's, it's going to be awesome for these people. It's awesome for this special group of people. But now here's the million-dollar question. Why are they allowed to go into the millennial kingdom and the other groups not? Why is this group going in? Can we all agree that upon first reading, it seems like they're going in because of what they do in verse 35 and 36. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. For because... Kind of seems like that. So is that the the point to take? Hey, apparently there's this unique group of people and God makes the rules and their good works are going to get them into heaven. Is it by accident, ladies and gentlemen, would you notice verse 34, there are certain key words. Look at verse 34 and note these words. Come you who are blessed. You're blessed by my Father. Blessed. Can I use this word? Graced by the Father. Really notice the next word inherit the kingdom. Notice the next phrase, the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. When was the world, the foundation of the world laid? On day one of creation. The stars and the planets and all that, they're made later in in that week of creation. The the world was created on day one and so the idea here is before the foundation of the world on day one of creation, before there was even this thing called time, you were already This kingdom was prepared for you. You specific ones standing on the right side of Jesus called sheep. Put those words together. You're blessed. Come inherit. By the way, when you inherit something, you don't inherit it based on you earning it. You inherit it based on a relationship. Write this note. I've got to keep moving. These words that I just pointed out in verse 34, they all qualify and set the stage for what happens in verse 35 and 36. Why is that important? Their place, these people's place in the kingdom is not based solely on verse 35 and 36, their deeds. Their place in the kingdom is called an inheritance. Why is that important? Their inheritance means... That their place in the kingdom is based on them being chosen by the Father and blessed by the Father before time began and adopted, to be adopted into God's family. In other words, yes, they're going to be born into the family because the Bible talks about you must be born again. Have you been born... Physically, yes, have you been born physically, and spiritually, you have to be born again, but also, we're adopted into the family of God. This unique group is so blessed by God that there, before the world began, they've been chosen, and this kingdom was prepared for them. They're blessed. They're inheriting the kingdom that was prepared for them i want to give you a moment because the next thing I'm going to hit, I have to make sure if we miss anything else today, I've got to make sure that we get this. And so to do so, I'll probably say this two or three times. And I'm going to borrow from R.C. Sproul to do it. So I want to encourage you after you finish writing that last note, really hear this. We'll hold off on putting it up on the screen. Don't worry about getting the blanks right. I want you to taste it. It's simple. It's very, it's very accurate theological. But here we're wondering, okay, are these people getting into the kingdom based off of their good works? Is that not what 35 and 36 is saying? Sproul writes the following. Quote, just hear it. Quote, we are told over and over again in Scripture that justification, that's, that's one word that the Bible uses for salvation, okay? So when you are justification, think salvation. We're told over and over again in Scripture that justification is by faith alone so we preach that all the time i want everybody to hear that the only thing you can do to have god declare you righteous and to have god declare you righteous you're not righteous but how is he going to declare you righteous he declares us righteous through christ jesus is righteous he took our sins he paid for them on the cross if we put our faith by faith alone if we put our faith in what jesus did that it is for us and enough and don't do anything else Just hear the promises of God by faith alone. That's how you get justified. Sproul writes, we're told over and over again in Scripture that justification is by faith alone. Thus, works play no part in salvation. However, hear this, justification is not by a faith that is alone. You're saying, what? So you see on a quote that's coming up, I've spliced it. For, sp- for space but also for clarity we're still just listening just hear it justification is by faith alone however justification is not by a faith that is alone if you end up with only what you think is faith and there's nothing else happening around your faith then you don't have the right kind of faith It is only by faith alone, but it is not by a faith that ends up alone. He continues, again, still listening. He says, It is not by a mere profession of faith. Hey, what makes you think you're going to heaven? I'm trusting Jesus and Him only. Are you sure? Do you know there are people, perhaps sitting here, that know that answer in their head? That's the right answer. They know the answer in their head, but they do not have actual faith. They know to say about faith, and they know to profess faith, but they don't actually have the right kind of saving faith. You say, how do you know they do or do not? He continues. I'm going to back up a touch. However, justification is not by a faith that is alone. It is not by a mere profession of faith. Here it comes. Anyone who possesses, possesses saving faith immediately begins to do good works. That's a fact. He continues We are not justified by our works in any way whatsoever, but we are justified to good works, according to Ephesians 2, verse 10. We are the workmanship of Christ, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them and accomplish them. So hear the whole thing again, and then I'm going to have it put on the screen. Okay? Yep. Hear it one more time, and then I'll try to give you time to write. We are told, do these people go into the kingdom? Because, man, we know they end up with eternal life. Sounds like these people get in because of works. We're told over and over again in Scripture that justification is by faith alone. Thus, works play no part in salvation. However, justification is not, by, is, is not by a faith that is alone. It is not by a mere profession of faith. Anyone who possesses saving faith immediately begins to do good works. We are not justified by our works in any way whatsoever, but we are justified to good works. Hey, before we put that up, I want to chase it with a, a quick quote from MacArthur. Because it will have just a little more clarity. MacArthur adds, the good deeds that are commended in Matthew 25, verses 35 and 36. Catch it. He says, Those good deeds that are commended are the fruit, not the root of salvation. Catch it again. Those good deeds, why did they do that? That's what got them into heaven, isn't it? That's what got them into the kingdom and ultimately into eternal life, isn't it? Nope. They're the fruit, not the root. salvation you guys give me some feedback real quick like literally say the answers give me a synonym for fruit these good deeds that are commended they're the fruit of salvation they're the result they're the they're the actions because of salvation they're the give me another word for fruit they're the the product byproduct the result Uh, uh, again you said the evidence y'all catch the difference now give me a synonym for this. They're not, these, these good deeds that are commended are not the root of salvation. What's a synonym for root? They're not the root. They're not the, the source. Yes. They're not the cause. Do you understand what's happening below the surface is what causes what happens above the surface. Why do these people do what they do in 35 and 36? Because they had faith in Christ and that drove them, they have faith and love that Christians have for one another. That's how we know we've got to take the whole counsel of God here and put it together. Now let's write the note, the spiced up note that I hope does not do damage. I think it gets the point across that Sproul wrote to us. Justification is by faith alone. Faith alone, that's all you have when you get saved. But if your faith ends up staying alone, then you never got saved. It must end up Producing good works. And that's how you know I had the real faith. Anybody can learn a theological answer to somebody asking them how they know they're going to heaven. As you're writing that, let me add to it quickly. Christians will love each other. Christians will love each other. That's why this is happening. John chapter what is it? 13 verse 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you. Right before that, he says that. Now he says, this is how all men will know that you're my disciples. Because you love one another. As you're still writing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip over and read something real quick while you're writing that. Listen to how James says it. And actually catch how James, what he tags it and how he explains it. Watch this. James chapter 2 verse 14. As you're finishing writing. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? Hey, how how, how are you going to heaven? I have faith in Jesus. What else? Just faith in Jesus. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? He never ends up having any works, good works in his life. What good is that, he writes. He asks a great question. Can that faith save him? He says he has faith. He's got the right theology, I'm trusting Jesus. But no good works occur. James asks, can that, can I add the word kind? Can that kind of faith save him? And guess what example he uses right after after saying that? Well, it's gonna sound like Matthew 25. James says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one says to them, wow, they're lacking clothes and food go in peace, be warmed and filled. They say, go in peace. I want you to go in peace, and I want you to be warmed and filled. It looks like you don't have enough clothes. You don't have enough food. Go be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, James says, what good is that? I'm going to heaven because I've got faith in Jesus. But we see no results. We see no fruit, no evidence. There's no byproduct of it. All you have is a theological answer. He finishes by saying, "So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You just have dead theological answer. You don't have real faith." Did I beat that into the ground enough? God's people, true believers, show love to each other. Go read not now. Go read Acts chapter four. What do you find? The church loving on each other because when they have needs, they sell their stuff to help meet the needs of each other. What do you find in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9? A collection is being made for the poor saints back in Jerusalem by other people who are themselves are poor because Christians love each other. Matthew chapter 25. Let's quickly finish, uh, not finish, but move forward into the second point. You ready? So here's our next question. Down to verse 40, the king will answer them. So they're going to say, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and Without proper clothing and and a stranger and, and sick and in prison, he has these six categories. When did we see that? We don't remember seeing that. You're saying that we did something for you. We don't remember that. Verse 40, the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it. It was as you did it. You want to know when? It was as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. You did it to me. So now we need to know, who are these brothers? Who are these brothers, these ones that Jesus calls his brothers and sisters? That's a good question. Let me give you some answers that some have proposed. Some say the brothers and sisters, the needy, is all people. All people. All people are the brothers. Jesus means all people. Others say, no, that's not right. and I don't think that's the right answer either. Others say, no, it's all poor people. All poor people. All poor people around the world. That's what he's talking about here. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Others say he's calling the apostles his brothers. Anyone who does good and meets their needs. They would be part of it, but the time frame doesn't fit because they're, not, they're, they're gone already. So we know this is talking about a group that's still yet future for us. So it's not the apostles. Others would say it's pioneer missionaries. And when missionaries take, they're pioneer missionaries. They take the gospel. How people respond to those missionaries, if they help them out, it shows that they're receiving their message. And that's what's happened here. It's pioneer missionaries. I think they're included, but that does not exhaust the list. Here's another one. This is a big one. These brothers that Christ is talking about are those in the tribulation that are Jews. Jews who get saved in the tribulation. They're his brothers, and they're being hunted down by the Antichrist. And anyone who helps them, Jesus says you're helping him. And I would say they're in the group, but I think it is broader than that. So it is narrower than all people, narrower than all the poor people of the world. So write this quickly. When Jesus calls this group of people his brothers, he's referring to none other than His disciples, any of His true followers, His true disciples, any of them. that's who Jesus is calling His brothers. When you help any true follower or disciple, disciple or believer in me, then it has been counted as to Christ. So in other words, guys, what seems to be happening, as pointed out by R. T. France, Proverbs 1917, I'm going to give you a quick reference. you're not going to see it on the screen it's like this has been expanded. Here's Proverbs 19, 17. The person who is kind to the poor, this is the Bible, by the way. The person who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. When you're kind to the poor, you lend to the Lord. What France points out is that more broad general principle in Proverbs 19 is thus here in Matthew 25, specifically applied to Jesus and his people. So I'm quickly moving from this thought. God loves all poor people, but I'm going to tell you straight up, He especially loves His people that are poor. That's who's being talked about in this text. All right, quickly. Now look at verse 37. Look at verse 37. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And they go down and ask the question. Look down at verse 44. Then they also will answer, saying, this other group, the, the goats are going to answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked and did not minister to you? You're sick and in prison. When did that happen? So here's one of the questions that I had, and I don't know that I really have the answer. Did they know these people, these needy, poor people that were hungry and thirsty and without clothing and were strangers and sick and in prison, did they know who they are? That's, my, that's what I'm wondering. Did they know who they are? You say... Well, no, they obviously don't because of the surprise they show. Watch. The surprise they show is that what they did or didn't do counted or did not count for Christ. That's what they didn't know. It doesn't say that they knew who they were. Maybe they didn't know. Are you tracking? I'm not saying this very well. Follow right here. Maybe they didn't know who these people were and they just see a poor person. Here, here's some food, man. Oh, thank you. They don't know they're a believer. Here, here's something to drink. Can you wear this? It looks like you need something. Why you look sick. Let me help you. Well, you're a stranger. You're not part of the regular assembly, or you look like you don't have somewhere to... And they end up doing it. One group doesn't, and the other group neglects them. Maybe they have no clue who they are, but the Lord knows. Or maybe they know who they are. That is a Christian that's in need, and so I'm intentionally going to help them. And the Lord is watching that, and this other group, that's a Christian... I know they are, and I'm not going to help them. So we don't know the answer. Do they know them, them or not? One quick thought, because this bugged me as well, and I'm sorry to unload on you guys. I know my clock is running. I'm unloading on, on you guys things that I, my brain wrestles with during the week. Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11. If you want to write that little reference, we're not going to go there. If you go track that down, here's what you'll find. Those who take the name, the number, or the mark of the beast will receive the judgment of God. The wrath of God will be poured on those who take the mark or the number. We know the number is 666, but those who take the name or the mark of the beast on their forehead or on their right hand, they're going to receive the wrath of God. I'm going to propose to you, I know for a fact Based on that, that those people end up receiving wrath, I know that the sheep here in the tribulation do not receive the mark or the name or the number of the beast. You say, how do you know that? Because our text tells us that they end up with eternal life. And so they don't receive the wrath of God, so that tells me they don't take the mark. Now, y'all help me out. Why would anybody take the name or the number or the mark of the beast? Why does anybody take it? Because you ha- yes, I'm hearing the answer. Because you have to have that if you're going to buy or sell. Buy or sell what? Food, clothing, drinks, necessities of life, medicine. You want to buy things? Are you all tracking with me? Does this create some questions like, oh, well, time out. Those who take the mark of the name or the number on them, they're going to receive the wrath. These sheep do not receive the wrath. They end up, we know they end up with eternal life but you can't buy or sell and trade without the mark. So how do these people have anything to give to the poor? All right, so let's move on. No, I'm not kidding, I'm, I'm gonna throw out a couple answers. I thought about that, and your, brain, your mind's already gone. Okay, like, hey, wait, wait a minute, how are they? they? Yeah, they didn't take the mark either. Obviously, the other believers didn't. Believers will not take the mark. So how are they able, how are they able to help them? All I could think of was like three things. I'm sure there's more, and you'll come up with more. One, maybe they're able to grow their own food. Maybe they're able to gather. Not growing it, but we know where we can go. There's, a, there's some apples over there. There's some berries. There's some things buried, and most people don't know you can eat this. And they're going to live on this for just a little while. And then I'm going to offer a third option. No doubt I'm sure this will happen. People will get saved, and they will have Bibles, and they will read the Bible, and they'll read the book of Revelation. And they'll read Daniel, and they're going to figure it out. Uh Uh-oh, that just happened. That's the mark of the the center of the tribulation period. We now have 1,260 days. Pretty soon, a mark is going to be required on everybody, not going to be able to buy and sell. And so they're going to start hoarding and storing. And so they're going to have it saved up. So that they're not going to be able to buy and sell once once that's in place. Why is that important? I only said all of that for this reason. Whether they're growing their own or gathering or they've stored it up in advance... Do you see two things? Do you see the danger in them helping other believers that are being hunted down by the Antichrist? Remember, they're trying to do false signs to get believers to come out from hiding so they can kill them. And Jesus says, don't believe it. Oh, the Messiah is over here. He's in the temple. He's out in the wilderness. Jesus says, you stay in hiding. So if you're helping other believers, you're putting yourself at risk. But the second thing I'm noticing is what a sacrifice If you know we, my people, we've got to live this long if we do make it. We have to have this much. And then you see other needy people and you start giving them things that they need. It's depleting your supplies, what you're growing or gathering or what you've set aside. That's why Jesus says, I've been watching the whole thing. I know what it cost you. You were putting yourself at risk and you were doing this at a great sacrifice. You come on in to the kingdom. You're blessed for this reason. That's the fruit of their salvation. So just before we hit the third point, I want to ask you. After all that Jesus has done for you, I'm talking about Jesus. If you saw Jesus and you know that's him and you saw him hungry and you have food, would you give it to him? Think, Jesus is hungry. I see Jesus. I know Jesus is hungry. Would you give him food? You should be saying, well, absolutely. If you knew he was thirsty, would you give him something to drink? Sure. If you knew he needed clothing, would you give it to him? Yes. If you knew he was the stranger at the the assembly, no one knows. No one's welcoming him. But you know who he is. Would you welcome him? Of course I would. I would love to have the opportunity to do anything for Christ. Great. I'm glad you all agree. Write this note. Jesus' whole point in this section is that he is God. And as God, he doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need anything from us. But he is so connected. To his people. That if you want to do something for him, yes, I'd do anything for him. If you want to do something for him, then he counts any kindness done to any of his brothers and sisters in Christ. Any of the other believers. He counts anything you do for those needy people as if it was to him. He doesn't need it. But he says, you do it for them, it's as if you've done it for me. And I'm taking notes. Hmm. So what that now tells me is... The needy people in our path this coming week, maybe even today, they very well may be followers of Christ. You may be led and want to help them, whether they're a follower of Christ or not, but especially if you find out, well, those are believers, and I see the need, and I have it. Guys, y'all understand what Jesus has done here? This doesn't take a lot of skill. These are simple things. You don't have to have, like, great talent. You just have to have some resources and the willingness to do it. Like, wait, I can do that. Here, here's some water, here's some food, here's some clothes. What if one of God's favorite people, and I'm comfortable using that term, what if one of God's favorite people is the stranger that's sitting just a few feet from you right now? Will you just let them walk out of here? I can't welcome them all. They may not come to my door. Are you going to let them walk out? When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. They didn't. Number three. The fate of the faithless and the heartless. We'll be to verse 41 in a moment. But first, quickly, just some general things of this section. Actually, you know what I'm going to do? Let me read verse 41 through again. Let's read it and taste it, all right? I'll go quickly. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Do you catch the tone there? What are they implying? Wait, 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 wait. When did we? They're implying, we didn't know. Can we have another shot? Can we have another chance here? We didn't know that was you. That's, in essence, what they're saying. Verse 45. He will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Real quickly, this section tells me that people are going to be judged for at least these three things. So be ready. People will be judged for doing the things they were supposed to do. You did these things, and you were supposed to do these things. That will be a good verdict. So we've seen that. But it also tells me that people will be judged. You did these things, and you were not supposed to do them. You're not supposed to do these things, but you did them, and so that's a committing of a sin. There's a commission of sin, but there's also going to be a judgment of you did not do these things that you were supposed to do. Do you see the difference? Judgment is for you did these things you were supposed to do, get a good evaluation. Then there's this You did these things you were not supposed to do. And then there's, you did not do these things that you were supposed to do. You didn't do them. You have omitted. And by omitting this action and neglecting it, you have committed sin. And we're going to give an account for that. So here we have two groups before us. Write this note quickly. One group did things. They did a lot of things. We saw that in verses 35 to 40. One group did things that was an evidence of their faith and their love. The other group, unfortunately, did one word, nothing. They did nothing. They're not on trial here for what they did that was wrong. It's what they didn't do. As you're writing that, I'm going to borrow from William Barclay. He writes the following. The whole attitude of those who failed to help was, if we had known it was you, we would have gladly helped. But we thought it was only some common man who was not worth helping. If we'd known it was you, can we have another shot here? We didn't know that was you. Hey guys, is that going to be any of us on the day of judgment, standing before the Lord, being evaluated? Remember that one, and that one, and that one. They were always in your path. I didn't know that was you. I didn't know that counted as if it was to you. Barclay continues, and this one's actually in your handout. He says there are those who will. This is the group in verse forty-four. He says, there are those who will help if they are given praise and thanks and publicity. But to help like that is to not help. It is simply disguised selfishness. It's just disguised. Oh, wait, are people going to know that I'm doing this? What the Lord is really commending is the unknowing act of kindness and love and faith. The unknowing is just I I just feel like I have it. You need it. I'm supposed to do this. The Lord is taking notes. One group's omissions exposed their heart because they saw the same need as the other group. This group did something and this group did nothing. And it cost them dearly. Because, guys, listen, Jesus is taking notes. He knows who his brothers and sisters are and he's taking notes. I'll not give the long version, but a couple of years ago I heard my uncle do him. So my dad comes from a family of six boys and two girls. And he, he was the next to the youngest of all the eight. And he has, Dewey was his younger brother. So Dewey's the absolute youngest. Charles, as my dad, was second youngest. And then, so I forget, I don't know how the, the older girls are mingled in with the two older brothers. So the boys go, went Jack and Lewis, and then there was Harold and Clarence and Charles and Dewey. So my Uncle Dewey was talking about, this would be 70 years ago, over 70, was probably about 74 years ago. Uh, no, no, about 60 four years ago. This is in Fairview, North Carolina, just outside of Asheville. So Dewey was a freshman at A.C. Reynolds High School. And I forget the details, but he remembered it well. He says the upper class guys would always do something to the freshman boys. I forget what it was, probably something we probably don't need to talk about in here. Upper class boys in high school, they're they're going to work their way through and they're going to get all the freshman boys. Well, Dewey had already decided and Dewey's a strong guy. They call him Big Arm. That's, his, that's when we go bear hunting. His nickname on the radio is Big Arm. There's a reason. He's, he's strong. Dewey's a ninth grader. And sure enough, they caught him in the locker one day. And here comes probably eight or nine of the upper class boys. And they're going to do whatever it was to him. He made up his mind. I'm, he's going to put up a fight. They're not going to just do it to him without a fight. And so he backed up on a wall. And he, made, he started defending himself. And all of a sudden, he says, I just looked up. And from the back, there's this group of guys. Some of them are getting thrown off and somebody's swinging. And he said, look and behold, Charles. Now my dad's two years older, so my dad would have been a junior coming in and knowing what they're doing. He said, and the next thing I know, Charles is standing beside me and we're swinging and fighting. Those guys decided it's not worth it and they ended up leaving me alone. Why? His whole point was that we're brothers. I don't know when he said it, he said it at his uncle, my uncle Harold's funeral. That's where he said it at. Now we were brothers and we fight for each other and we defend each other. Listen. There is no elder brother like the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's, he's, he's keeping notes at all times. He's noting who does something good for his brothers and sisters. And he's noting who does something wrong to his brothers and sisters. And he's a whole lot more powerful than any other elder brother. He's taking, where are you going to be caught in all of that scene? Let's finish back in 41 and 46. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, Jesus, this is a real event. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. If you're taking notes, I'll invite you to write this. That is the worst sentence anyone will ever hear spoken. That's the worst sentence. I've, I've got to believe in the Bible. Verse 41 of Matthew 25 has to be the worst pronouncement, the worst sentence. Could you imagine... Ladies and gentlemen, think. I'm so glad I'm not in this group. I cannot be in this group. I've been saved by grace through faith, but there's actually going to be people in verse 41 that is going to hear these words from Jesus, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Worst sentence ever to be spoken over anyone. You say, why is this the worst? It's the worst kind of death. Depart. Separate. We know, you've heard me say this over and over, physical death is when our soul and our spirit leaves and departs and separates from our body. If that were to happen to me right now, there would be a body here. My soul and spirit would be gone. The body would be left. That's physical death. But the Bible in Revelation talks about a second death. This is a real event when the whole person, body, soul, and spirit, is removed away from the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and they are put in the torments of hell. And you say, Jeff, you really believe in all that hell stuff? Oh, absolutely. You don't get to pick and choose. I don't believe that's literal, but the rest is literal. You don't get to pick and choose. We take the Bible as as it comes. I want to ask you a question. I wish I had about a minute for you to think about it. Quickly think, what do you know of hell? Think of what you know of hell. Think of that. You're like, well, biblically, I know that hell has this. It's a place of this. Start your list. Hell is a place of, okay, start it in your mind. Because here's my question. To you, to you, to you, if you had to narrow it down, what do you think is the worst aspect of hell? What is the worst aspect? Let me offer some characteristics of hell hell is a place of flames real fire hell is a place of torment that's the word torment that's used darkness regret major regret awareness of law these people are aware of lost opportunity worms I don't even know what that means it's a place where the worm dies not it's a place of isolation it's a place of raging thirst a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth loathsome of themselves. Why did I let this happen? Again, here's the list. Flames, torment, darkness, regret, isolation, raging thirst, weeping, gnashing of teeth, awareness of lost opportunity and worms. And there's more things. Those are the ones that came to my mind yesterday morning. Of that list, what is the worst of that? What's the worst thing about hell? I want to propose to you, it is none of those one things. No one part of those Are the worst thing about hell. You say, then what is? Write this down. It must surely be that hell is eternal. That's got to be the worst thing. You say, what do you mean? Perhaps worse than any one part of its torment will be knowing. Knowing that there's no hope of it ever ending. Guys, you understand? If I had to go to hell for one minute, it would be absolutely awful. Could you imagine 60 seconds in that condition? Screaming, falling, flames, torment, raging thirst, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. I mean, just awful for 60 seconds. But if I could know that it's over at 61 seconds, you say, well, Jeff, that, the Bible does I know. It doesn't say like after 100 years or after 1,000 years. No doubt it is the worst thing has to be knowing that it never will end. There's no end to this. Write this down. To eventually be annihilated. Can I just be annihilated? Oh, that would be a welcomed option. But it's not one of the choices. It's not part of hell. And I know I'm now hitting something that a lot of people say don't even preach on it. Just skip it. Hit it real quick and leave and say the last prayer and let's go home. Jeff, we don't take this literally. Good Bible teachers otherwise... Don't believe in the the literality of this. Years ago, 35, 40 years ago, I had a cousin. He tried to convince me. She was writing that. Here's what my cousin tried to convince me. We would go work on jobs together every now and then. And I was in my like 15. I was already called to preach. Didn't know much about the Bible. A lot less than I do now. Still don't know much that much that much. Still don't know that much about the Bible. But I remember him saying, hey, Jeff, you, you know that no one actually ends up in hell for eternity. No one ends up. No one's, no one's actually in hell for eternity. I said, oh, yes, they are. He was older than me. He'd already studied it out and had his opinion. And I, I'm thinking, that's not what I've heard. And here I am like 15 thinking, not my pastor, Pastor Lewis says. And so he says, no, nobody ends up in hell for eternity. And I said, sure it does. So the next time we meet, I come back with some verses. And he says, yeah, forever and ever. Forever and ever. You know what it means, Jeff? Ages and ages. Ages and ages. That's what forever and ever means. Yeah. That implies after some ages and ages, eventually they get out or annihilated. Whichever view you want to take. Are you sure? Yes. So I went back to study some more. Then I come back and I found some passages that had the word Eternal. And it put it out showed him that. And he says, yes, the flames are eternal and the smoke is eternal. But no one's in it. That's just a memorial. So people remember how serious God is about sin. They're not in it. That's just a memorial. Shot that down. I tried that. I tried this. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be honest. I'm, I'm like 15, 16 years old by this time. I'm thinking, I hope he's right. I really, this would be great, man. It's still horrible, but if there's at least an end, hopefully he's right. And then one day I read verse 46. And I don't delight in verse 46. These will go away into ever eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Do y'all understand what that does? Let me give you two, two supposed doctrines. The doctrine of annihilationism, that eventually people just cease to exist. And then the doctrine of universalism, where eventually everybody gets saved. They burn off their sins, and eventually everybody gets saved. And they'll pull a passage or two. Do you all understand that verse 46 destroys annihilationism, and it destroys universalism? Why? Write this down. Because the word punishment requires that someone is actually in the flames. Punishment is not just like eternal fire. The fire is eternal, and they're receiving eternal punishment. Someone's in it. And if that does not convince, by the way, I'm not like so zealous. I really love this doctrine. I want to defend it. I just want to be a realistic person. Also, we need to understand that the word that underlies what, what's been translated here in the English for us as eternal. Did you see it? The same word describes both life and punishment. The same word modifies life and punishment, our English word eternal. Eternal life, eternal punishment. It's, not like, it's like there are two parallel lines if we were to make time. It's not like this one over here stops and eternal life keeps going. If you're going to shorten one, you have to shorten both. What this means is the eternal agony of some lasts just as long as the eternal delight of others. You don't get to pick and choose. And I close with this thought. D.A. Carson makes this point. So let's finish where where we're thinking. Carson writes, quote, y'all with me? Some have argued that this doctrine has turned many people into infidels. Carson says some have argued that this doctrine has turned many people into infidels. In other words, I used to believe in God, but if that's the kind of God he is, I don't believe in God. You say, you think that's true? Oh, absolutely. He's right. Many people have been turned into infidels because of the doctrine of eternal punishment. But now hear the rest of what he says. Some have argued that this doctrine has turned many people into infidels, but so have other Christian doctrines. But here's why I quoted it. He says, the question is not how men respond to a doctrine, but what Jesus and the New Testament writers actually teach about it. The question is not how men respond. You shouldn't do that, Jeff. Somebody may leave here today and say, if that's the kind of God he is, or election, predestination, if that's the kind of God he is, then I don't believe in God anymore. That's your loss. That's your loss. Because he's correct. The question is not how men respond to a doctrine. But what Jesus and the New Testament writers actually teach about that. I'll tell you straight up, guys. I'll tell you straight up. I don't like this doctrine. I don't like it. What are you going to do about it, Jeff? What are we going to do? Are we just going to fabricate a God in our mind that we like and keep these things? And I don't like these things, so I'm going to keep this aspect of God, and I'm going to just do away with those and replace it with this. Is that what you do when you find something you don't like? That's two things. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. That's you fabricating a God. Number two, this this is my main point, right? It's worthless. That is worthless. That's pointless. All that's doing is, I don't like that doctrine, Jeff. I don't believe that part. Okay, stick your head in the sand and act like it's not real. This is reality. Pretending. What use is it in pretending? So where we're left is we must... Take God, all of God, exactly as he describes himself in his word and not like just miraculously suddenly without any evidence or reason why allegorize the things we don't like and keep literal the things that we do like. If you have that habit, you have no grounds to do that. Stop dicing up the word of God. Take it as it is. The part you like and the part you don't. And then you'll get a true picture of the real God. We must take God as He is. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Those two words, eternal, and I'm done right here. I thought, man, those two words, eternal, eternal punishment. They teach me. Jeff, God is much more holy than you think he is. Eternal punishment. God is really holy. Listen, it tells me God is much more just than I think he is. I don't like this doctrine, but this is what we have. God is way more just and way more holy than I think he is. Here's what else it tells me. Sin is far worse and more evil than we think it is because in God's view, it demands eternal. Me that's, that's, that's way out of proportion, Lord, but God knows everything. I don't. I just have my little human knowledge, my little human perspective. God sees everything. Here's what he's saying. Jeff, sin is worse than you think. I'm holier than you think. I'm more just than you think. Sin is worse than you think. Here's what else it tells me the good news. God is way more gracious than I realize. Way more gracious because he overcame something that was so bad that deserves eternal punishment, he loved me that much. He sent his son to save me from that. And that leads me to the fifth thing. Salvation is way more precious and priceless and valuable than I ever thought it is because I'm never going to take part in eternal punishment. I'm going to have eternal life. Like, that's valuable. You can't put a price on that. Like, this matters. Heads bowed, eyes closed. It's about eyes closed. I'm going to ask you quick questions. Do the words "saved" and "serving," saved and serving? So really evaluate yourself. We're talking, about, guys. We're not playing games today. We're talking about eternal life and eternal punishment. This, that's the only two. It's only two categories. You will end up having one or the other. Are you saved and serving? Does that, if you if you don't serve, then man, do you just have that professed faith that doesn't really have a possession of true faith? Can that kind of faith really save you? James asks, the implied answer is no. The kind of faith that never leads to good works, that's not real faith. We're talking about eternal life and eternal death, eternal hell. Are you saved and serving? If you have any doubt, you need to to talk with us. You need to talk with us today. Don't leave with doubt. We're justified by faith alone. Faith alone. But not by a faith that is alone. True saving faith, ladies and gentlemen, will be accompanied. To different levels, but it will be accompanied by good works. Do you, as you look at your life, can you look and say, I'm not trusting my good works, but I can look back since the time I got saved. God has changed my life. I now do things that I didn't do then. I have the love of the Lord. I find myself just wanting to do. And we have examples in Matthew 25. The principle in today's text, you say, Jeff, that's great. It applies to those people at the tribulation at the end. Guys, this is a timeless principle. Yes, our text is about those at the tribulation. It's a timeless principle. And here it is. Jesus knows who are his, and he knows who helps those that are his. Have you done that? You have an opportunity. Don't end up when it's too late saying, hey, if I'd have known, then I would have done that. last two questions. Based on what I just said, is there a specific person or group of people? Maybe unsaved, but especially, especially, not to, not to divide, but is there a group of people or a person, a person in your life, you're like, I know they are needy, like real needs, not just talking about having the latest, greatest fashion, real needs, and you can actually do something about it, and they're in your path all the time. Is there anyone that you're like, you know what, There's a believer in my path. I'm going to help them. Or there's a group of believers. I'll just tell you guys straight up. In the last three weeks, I've had six different people helping me in things that I'm not good at. I can't do these things. They saw a need. Six different people have jumped in and helped me. All I know is God is watching all of that. And I may not be able to pay them back. But the day will come, He will. Get in on that. I'm not talking about helping me. I'm talking about when you see the need of a brother and sister in Christ, and you can meet it, jump on it. Let the Spirit lead you. And the last question is the most important, other than your own salvation. Is there somebody in your life, you're like, Man, I am am quite confident they are headed toward eternal punishment, and they're in my path every week. Would you start praying that the Lord will give you an opportunity to share the true gospel and at least give them a chance to hear it clearly? And maybe he'll use you to lead them to Christ. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, it's a heavy text. Lord, we acknowledge that and had some questions that are not easy. Lord, we, I really believe that we've rightly divided your word. and Lord, I struggled with it this week. But I think that you led me to that. So, Lord, if, if so, I pray that you would really apply this to our lives. Let us learn this timeless principle and carry it out in our life. Lord, I pray that if anyone here, Lord, please, please, if anyone listening now online or that is here right now that is not a true Christian, I pray that you'll make them so uneasy that they will seek us out. and Like, I need to know. I have some doubts. I don't see any any real fruit in my life. And it's making me wonder, do I have the right root of faith? Lord, please convict them if they're not saved. Lord, let the saved just anchor their faith. Lord, I pray that the saved, the truly saved, that you know who they are, that they will not be shaken by verse 46. Lord, please don't let true believers be shaken by verse 46. Let them just anchor their faith that Christ has paid their ransom, and it is plenty enough. And just rest in him and give thanks for so great a salvation. In His name we pray.